Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Then, if you'll open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, and we've only got um, a little bit longer in our study of the Holy Spirit. Uh, as a matter of fact, this week will kind of be um, the last week of things that I have prepared. Henceforth, if you guys have any questions or anything you want to cover concerning the Holy Spirit, it's all about you between now and next Wednesday getting questions in. Otherwise, we'll do uh, a brief blitz in the next few weeks uh, over uh, another book. All right, Galatians 5, 16 through 26, if you're there, I'm going to go ahead and read it. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies. And things like these, I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, as you've hopefully grown accustomed to, uh, let's do a review of where we've been. Um, I wasn't here last week. Neil was here. We're grateful for what he did and so thankful for him and his ministry among us. But in the weeks before that, we've been looking at the Holy Spirit. Week one, we looked at the Holy Spirit as a person in the Godhead. That is a person, a he, not an it, and one of the three persons of the Trinity. Then we looked at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Uh, the promised reality that Moses and the prophets were looking forward to the day when all of God's people would have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Moses said, I wish that all of God's people would prophesy. Then we looked at sort of the last of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. That is, we looked at the Holy Spirit as the anointing of Jesus the Messiah and how it was the Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus' ministry uh, and gave him miracles and uh, worked through him. And because Jesus uh, was the God-man, he came as man because he bore the Spirit, he could now pour out the Spirit. So the week after that, we looked at the Holy Spirit as the one who glorifies the Messiah and the church. Uh, and, and what the Holy Spirit's job is in terms of His ministry in the local church, which we said was going to lead to some 
debate, and so we spent a week looking at how to engage in theological debate, that is, how to fight and argue like a Christian. Uh, so we looked at all the things that we can sort of, when we're looking at something theological, the way that we can kind of be non-Christian about it, uh, and, and, and ways to be more Christian in our arguments. Because we are going to have those, amen? So it may as well be Christian's argument. Then we looked at the gifts of the Spirit, just an introduction to the gifts, uh, what they are, what they do, what they're for. Uh, then we looked the next week specifically at the sign gifts, that is, prophecy, tongues, and miracles, asking the question, uh, are those things still for today, or did they end with the time of the last prophet? And, and I said, I think that they continue in the church uh, but let's not be crazy about it. That's basically what I came down with. Uh, that is uh, a position that many people that I respect do not hold, and I would ask you to spend some time looking at respectful people to see how the other side argues. You might be convinced by them. Then, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, how it looked in the book of Acts, and then how Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians. Uh, because there's a whole strand of evangelicalism that says that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that happens after becoming a Christian. And it's about empowerment for service. And it's usually attended with uh, the gift of tongues. And what we said a couple of weeks ago was that um, while that is true in Acts, there was something particular going on in Acts. And by the time you get to the end of the New Testament, Paul will talk about all Christians as having been baptized in the Spirit, including Christians that we know had not yet spoken in tongues. So that while there was something particular going on in that change of epoch from the Old Testament into the New Testament that called for something specific, generally speaking in the age of the church, certainly speaking in the age of the church, uh, every person who believes in Jesus is baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, tonight what I want to do is look at the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Fruit of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then next week, any questions that you guys have, we'll just kind of tie a bow on it and uh, wrap it up. Uh, I'm in the middle of a book right now uh, by a guy named David Brooks. He writes for New York Times, I think. Uh, and the title of this book is The Road to Character. Uh, and David Brooks says something really interesting in the beginning of this book. He says that there are two different kinds of virtues that you can have. He called one set of virtues the resume virtues, and he called the other set of virtues the eulogy virtues. Now, here's what he means by those. Resume virtues are those things and accomplishments that you put on your resume so that somebody will hire you for a job. Right? Your, your CV, like, what have I done? What have I accomplished? What am I trained in? How much have I made here? What skills do I possess? You put these on a resume in order to get a job. But what Brooks says is, at the end of your life, at your funeral, you don't want somebody reading your resume. You don't want resume virtues. What you want there are eulogy virtues. And he said what these kind of eulogy virtues are are character. Because at the end of your life most people's funerals are not about what they accomplished so much as it was about who they were. 
So this week I went to Ms. Burnett's brother's funeral and he had a grandchild stand up and just talk about her grandfather. And she didn't talk about all the things that he had accomplished. She basically just said, my, my grandfather made sure that everybody knew that he loved them. And what Brooks argues in this book is we have a culture that is concerned more about resume virtues than eulogy virtues. And what we need to be about as people is growing in the kinds of things that will make you a good person to be around, not just a person who can do a lot and deserves a good job. you see the difference in those two things? Well, in the Christian life, I think there's something that sort of corresponds to that. So follow me here. The gifts of the Spirit are the resume virtues. Alright? And the fruits of the Spirit are the eulogy virtues. What do I mean by that? Well, gifting is good and important and necessary, right? All of us should be about taking the gift that God has given us and using it in the church. But I think we can all agree that we've been around people who were very gifted and not mature. And I'd rather be around a person who is slightly gifted but very fruitful than rather be around someone who's very gifted and not very fruitful. In our own day, there's been in the last five years a couple of significant Christian ministries that have really fallen because the leaders of those ministries were very gifted people but weren't very fruitful Christians. So up in Chicago right now, you have James McDonald. He's used some of his Bible studies here at our church. Uh, ran a very big ministry, multi-million dollar thing, very gifted preacher. But as it turns out, he was kind of a jerk to work for and work with. And you can say the same thing about another man out of Seattle named Mark Driscoll. And you hope that these men, as they get humbled, will learn and grow. Um, and some people may even say there's this guy named Andrew Taylor. who might be very gifted, but very difficult to work with. I don't know. But the, you, you know the difference, don't you? But we live in a culture that just like it really wants resume virtues above eulogy virtues. We live in a church that thinks that maturity is giftedness rather than fruitfulness. And so what I want to do tonight as we look at the gifts of the Spirit is to kind of look at them in that way. That the gifts of the Spirit are very useful to God. And we should be engaged in using them. You have a gift, and as we said, the gift that God gave you, He gave you to build up your local church and the people around you, and you need to be using them. But that even while we seek to sharpen those spiritual gifts and hopefully have them grow, that what we want to be is a fruitful person. A person who demonstrates the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Gifts are necessary and great. They're just not always easy to live with. The real mark of maturity isn't giftedness, it's fruitfulness. So let's ask a couple of questions about our text tonight, um, and then we'll, we'll try to dig into it. Here's the two questions I want to answer tonight. What is the fruit of the Spirit? And then secondly, so how do we grow in bearing this fruit? What is the fruit of the Spirit? And I know y'all can't read that, but... That's our text. What is the fruit of the Spirit? And then how do we bear this fruit? So let's deal with those one at a time. 
So when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, um, oops, Paul gives us a nice list, right? It's there in verses 21 and following. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to go through this list one by one and tell you what each of them are. Not that that's a waste of time. It certainly isn't a waste of time. It's just there's a little bit of nuance and there's some things that we could notice, but I'm going to assume that you basically know what these words mean. There's a, I mean, it's important that love is first, right? And that's that word agape, which means self-sacrificing love. When we think of love, we think of emotion. When the Bible thinks of love, it thinks of action, self-sacrifice, joy. We all know what that is. We want it. We know it's not happiness, right? It's different. Peace. We got that. Patience would be a fun one to do. In the Greek, that's the word macrothumia. You know what that means? Macro means long or big, and thumia means suffering. So when the King James translates that long-suffering, that's a great translation of the Greek. That's what patience is. It's suffering with people for a long time. Kindness. We know what that is. It's um, having an open um, approach to people, uh, to do them good. Uh, goodness. My goodness. We know what goodness is. Faithfulness may be a little different than we think. Faithfulness might also be translated reliability. Trustworthiness. In other words, when you tell somebody you're going to do something, then what are you going to do? You're going to do it. And when you tell someone that you're going to be there, you're going to be there. Now, we all fail in this, don't we? But one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is we're the kind of person that can be relied upon. That's a, that's a fruit of the Spirit at work in you. Gentleness. If you've been in church any length of time, you know that gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is power under control. That is, it's handling things with care. And then the final is self-control. Controlling your impulses. Controlling your action. Self-control is taking your life and on purpose aiming it in a direction. And the Bible says that all these things are fruit of the Spirit. So we can spend a lot of time going through that. But that's not what I want to do. I just want to point out a couple of things about the fruit of the Spirit. As we answer this question, what is the fruit of the Spirit? But it'll help us to understand it even better. And here are the two things I want to point out. Are you ready? First, and we always say this in our new members class, are you ready? What's amazing is that the fruit of the Spirit is not individual. The fruit of the Spirit is overwhelmingly communal. And this is an important thing, not only to just remind us, but just to say, in our day and age, if you were to go to the average Christian bookstore, the average Christian bookstore probably has a thousand books telling you how to be a better, happier Christian. And it's about you and your walk with God. But the Bible doesn't think primarily in those terms. The Bible doesn't primarily think about you and your relationship with God. The Bible's 
spends a whole lot more time talking about God and His people. Does this make sense? You're special to God and you have a relationship with God. But that our mindset as Christians always has to be about not just how I can grow, but how we can grow. Right? And, and the most important question sometimes isn't what did you get out of your quiet time this morning? The most important question is what did I get out of your quiet time this morning? Right? And what, what did she get out of your quiet time this morning? In other words, my growth should necessarily and naturally overflow into your lives because we're part of the people of God together. And so we need to change the way that we think about the fruits of the Spirit as if it's something that we can have apart from people and apart from a particular people. Because most of these are communal. So love begs the question, who do you what? It's hard to be a loving person all by yourself. You gotta have somebody to love, right? Now, joy, uh, again, that's something that we do have individually, but joy is supposed to be the thing that characterizes God's people together. Or here's one we often, we let the eagles tell us what peace is, right? I got a peaceful, easy feeling. No. Peace in the Bible usually isn't talking about the feeling you feel. Peace is about lack of enmity between So the Bible says when you have peace with God, it doesn't mean that you and God feel good. It means that there's, you're, you're, you're with one another. There's nothing between you. And so the fruit of the Spirit isn't that I feel peace in the midst of my circumstances. The fruit of the Spirit is there's peace among us. This is no small matter, is it? Or patience. There's, if you're going to suffer long, you've got to have somebody making you suffer, right? Or if you're going to be kind, there's got to be someone to be kind to. If you're going to be good, there's got to be someone to be good to. If you're going to be faithful, there's got to be someone upon whom you rely and somebody can rely upon you. Somebody to be gentle with and self-control is the thing that makes all this possible, right? Where ourselves really come into this is that ourselves is the thing we need to control so that the rest of this occurs among us. That's the first thing I want you to know about the fruits of the Spirit. Is that, bless you, or as I say, if you do it three times, we'll entangle it to you. And that might be an issue. But, um, but, fruit of the Spirit is primarily in the Bible communal because, listen, in the Bible, Christianity is primarily communal. And that stings, doesn't it? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm the kind of person who, if I could live on a compound with my family and my books, I'd be a happy camper, right? The problem is that's not the life that God calls any of us to. God calls us to a life among people who we have a lot of run-ins with. And it's in having run-ins with them that we are able to exercise and see the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is communal. But that's not easy. And you know what? There's not a lot of books about that. Because that message doesn't sell. Because I kind of just want to grow myself and then if possible get along with you but not necessarily need you. But in the, in the New Testament, and I, I struggle with this. But in the New Testament, the Bible says that we're to work for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because unless we're doing 
mature people unless we can be mature people together. And, and it said bumping into one another and really frustrating each other and then by God's grace humbly working through it and everybody on every side laying down their sin and, and the world seeing the church work through that, Jesus is actually glorified. Do you know why I stay here in spite of the fact that a couple of times over 10 years I wanted to go? Because God is more glorified that I stay than that I go. Right? You don't, as a pastor, make a mess and then ditch. We work through a mess together because Ephesians 3.10 says it's in the church that God is going to glorify Himself. So that's the first point. That took longer than I thought. But the fruit of the Spirit is communal. And then here's the second thing about the fruit of the Spirit I want you to understand. Are you ready? In other places in the Bible, these things are commanded. Now, why do I point that out? The reason I point that out is because we can read the fruit of the Spirit and we can think, well, it's a tree's nature to bear fruit. Uh, and so if the Spirit is at work in me, then I don't have to do any work to bear fruit. And so when we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, I just need to let go and let God. But the things that are the fruit of the Spirit are commands to be obeyed by Christians in other parts of the Bible. I could take you to other sections of the New Testament and show you where you know where you're commanded to love. How about joy? What does Paul say in Philippians? Rejoice. Command. Right? Uh, be at peace with one another. Be patient with one another. Be kind to one another. Ephesians, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. All these things are, are... So the fruit of the Spirit is something in which we take part, right? And so when, even though it is the Spirit who's doing it, God always gives us a part to play in the thing that He's most responsible for, right? And so I don't want you to see this and think two things. That this is individual... And this is something I just need to let happen. No. This is communal. And you need to be actively obeying so that the fruit of the Spirit is being born in your life. I mean, a tree does bear fruit by nature. But think about all the work that a tree does to bear fruit. Next in sunlight rays, and then you have photosynthesis, right? You've got roots stretching out to find moisture in the ground drawing and working that moisture up, taking that moisture out, flowering, and of course this is all the work of God, but the tree has a part. And so if you're going to bear the fruit of the Spirit, we need to do it in a community. And that community isn't your family. It has to be your family, but beyond your family, right? What did Jesus say? Even the Gentiles love their family. Right? It's no major... Uh, God, what is growing to be a major accomplishment in our day that mothers love their children, but it, it used to not be so much of one. Moms love their kids, dad love their kids, husbands and wives love them. And so I can love my family, and that's where I've got to show my spirituality. Jesus says even the Gentiles love their family. No, a demonstration of real spiritual life is that you have a sacrificial love for people beyond just that order. And so these are communal. And the fruit of the Spirit, even though it is the fruit of the Spirit, is something that we have a role in because in other places in the New Testament we're commanded to do those things. 
that make sense? Following? So we got to do this together, and it's not let go and let go. we got to do this together, and we need to be doing the things that we should do to bear fruit. And that leads to the second question. So how do we bear this fruit? Well, the first thing that we have to do is we have to realize that we, we have an enemy. The fruit of the Spirit has an enemy. And here's what that enemy is. Ready? Anybody see what word I underlined in the box there? The word flesh. Where else does it occur? See, there's maybe some more in there. We'll catch them as we go along. In order to bear this fruit, the first thing you have to realize is there's an enemy to your fruit bearing. Have you ever heard that line? Uh, Sirs, we've met the enemy and the enemy is us. It's kind of along those lines. That, that when Jesus saved you, he, he dealt a mortal blow to your old person. But your old person, like a snake with its head cut off, is still kind of writhing around and causing all kinds of trouble. Flesh. And when the Bible says the flesh, which is our enemy, it's the enemy of fruit bearing. Here's what I want you to see. We've said this before. Flesh in the New Testament doesn't mean body. Okay? If, if bodies were inherently evil, then Jesus couldn't have taken one up. And if bodies are inherently evil, then Jesus wouldn't resurrect them, would he? So we're not saying that the body is evil. When the Bible uses the word flesh... It means something else. And so let me tell you what flesh means in the Bible. This is my definition based on a lot of reading. The flesh is our old nature that doesn't want to submit to anyone else and doesn't want to need anyone else. The flesh is our old nature that doesn't want to submit to anyone else and doesn't want to need anyone else. In other words, the flesh is Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. Yay! So when the flesh is met with God's law, it rebels against it. Or it tries to obey it in its own power. So it'll either say, I don't like your law, or I don't need your help in obeying it. And one is a very pagan way to respond to God's law, and another is a very seemingly Christian way to respond to God's law. I don't need your rules, or I don't need your help in obeying your rules. And the problem is, when we have a flesh that doesn't want to submit to anything or need anything, how does that work out in community together? It's pretty terrible, isn't it? And so you have what are called here the works of the flesh, and they kind of come in groups. The first group is stuff related to sex and lust, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. Uh, then you have a couple that have to do with godlessness, that is idolatry and sorcery. See that? Then you've got a couple that have to do with not living within limits, drunkenness and orgies. And then the biggest group you have in the middle 
are a bunch of things that have to do with community. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Envy. The reason I point these out is because all of us can look at someone who is a sex fiend and go, this person will not inherit the kingdom of God. We can even look at people who are involved in idolatry and sorcery and go, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. We may even run into people who are drunk and doing orgies, and that still does happen, right? Um, and we can say, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, divisions, envy. And we say to that, Lord, forgive my sin. <laughs> right? But if we're characterized by these things, what does Paul tell us will happen? We will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we have an enemy. It is the flesh. It is our old pre-Jesus nature that doesn't want to submit to anyone else and doesn't want to need anyone else. And that results in all kinds of community problems. And the Bible says that if we are characterized by these kinds of community problems, that we will not inherit the kingdom of God. That does not mean that the kingdom of God is based on works. It means that the kingdom of God is based on the kind of trust that changes the way a person is. Now I just want to point out one thing to you, and then we'll move on. People have often pointed out that the stuff having to do with spirit is fruit, and the stuff having to do with the flesh are works. You see that? Now the works of the flesh are evident. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Um, and now the C one is an attempt at works, and the other is just the fruit of what God does. I was reading John Piper the other day, and here's what he said: All of these fleshly things. I don't know about you, but I don't have to work at those. Those just kind of seem to happen too, don't they? You see, you see what I'm saying? So when it says works of the flesh, it's not saying these are things that our flesh drums up. And the fruit of the Spirit is just the stuff that kind of flows out of the Spirit. No, all of these things kind of flow out of me, right? Sexual morality, fits of anger. I've never had to work up anger. Wait a second. I'm getting angry. Let me work it up. I'm going to drum it up here. Now, what does anger do? Right? What does lust do? What does envy do? It's just sort of there. So why, why does Paul use the word works there for the flesh when they are fruit just like the stuff of the Spirit? Well, here's what Piper says, and I think, I think he's on something here. Let me read you what he says. Um... He says, now why does Paul call the products of our flesh works and the products of God's Spirit through His fruit? Until recently I would have said because God, because works implies effort and fruit implies effortlessness. And it's God's will that we experience love, joy, and peace effortlessly. But then I noticed, he says, many of the works of the flesh are just as effortless for a natural person as the fruit of the Spirit is for the spiritual person. Here's what he says. It seems to me that he uses the word works because all of these things are an attempt to settle accounts because we didn't get what we thought we deserved. In other words, when you have a fit of anger at somebody, it's because they did something against what you think 
you or someone else deserve. Jealousy is me not having what I think I deserve and you having what I think I deserve. En- envy. All the, the reason that these are called works is because this has to do with us settling accounts about what we think we deserve. I deserve that one. Right? I deserve the things this God will give me. I deserve what it is that you have that I want. And so that's why maybe the word works is there. And so our flesh, which is that part of us that doesn't want to need anybody and doesn't want any help, our flesh is keeping accounts of what it is we think we deserve or what it is you owe me. And it's the things that come out of it are the kinds of things that destroy community. On the other hand, though, as we said, the fruit of the Spirit isn't effortless either. There are commands to obey by faith. And so what Paul wants to do in introducing the flesh here to us is basically to say this. If we're going to bear the fruit of the Spirit, it's not going to be because we coast. Because the fruit of the Spirit has an enemy, and that enemy is the flesh. I'm erasing all this so we can actually see what the Bible says here. Because I think it's very interesting. Paul says, uh, around verse 17, right up in here. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So in other words, if we're going to be fruitful people, it's not because we coast into it. Because we have uh, an enemy. We've got to overcome the impulses of the flesh by the Spirit in order to bear fruit. So when we say, how do we bear fruit? The first thing you have to realize is you have an enemy. And that enemy has to sort of be defeated. Down here, Paul says this. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And that we are not to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is a present tense verb. We've got to constantly work against gratifying the desires of the flesh. So the first thing we're going to do if we're going to bear fruit is we have to remember that when we gave our lives to Jesus, we gave our old nature to Him as well. And so the old nature that keeps accounts, and the old nature that demands its way, and the old nature that deals with people economically, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, you whip my back, I whip yours, that that person died, and we need to keep him buried. So Paul would say that's why you need to make no opportunity for the flesh in Romans. If we're going to bear the fruit of the Spirit, we've got to make no opportunity for the flesh. And so if you go into a situation where you have a past history of sexual immorality, well, Paul would say, hey, don't, don't go there. Right? Or if you were going to go into a situation where there's enmity and strife and you haven't dealt with it, you need to deal with it, you don't need to leave opportunities for the flesh. I find in my own heart sometimes that if I've had past history with someone, most of my interactions with them are now tests to see whether they've gotten better or not. Am I the only one that way? And I've got to kill that part of me, right? So we've got to make no room for the flesh. But then the second thing we're going to do, if we're going to bear spiritual fruit, Paul tells us 
down a little further. Look in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Galatians 6 7. As Paul's going to say, we've got to keep in step of the Spirit, we've got to walk by the Spirit, we've got to bear the fruit of the Spirit. I want to tell you how we do that. Paul says this in Galatians 6 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And, do not, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's the same kind of thing that goes on. If Paul's talking about spiritual fruit, then he's carrying that thought down when he's talking about sowing and reaping, isn't he? And so if we're going to bear spiritual fruit, we have to keep the flesh at bay. But then the second thing we need to do is we need to sow to the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you. That's the second one, Taylor. Third one's on you, buddy. Um, when I hear phrases like, walk by the Spirit, keep in step of the Spirit, sow to the Spirit, I'm going to be honest with you, those things sound nice, I just don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't always know what that looks like. What does that look like? What does it look like to sow the Spirit? What does it look to walk by the Spirit? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Do I go like, put my fingers like this and assume a position and like hum until I hear an audible voice? Is that what it means? Or what does it mean to sow to the Spirit? I don't understand. What does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? I can't see His footprints. Can you? And so I, I hear all these nice phrases and I say these nice phrases back to people but I don't always know what they mean. And so what does it mean to sow the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. What does that look like inside of me? What do I have to do in order to do that? Well, let me say a couple things and we're done. When a farmer sows something, he's planting a seed that he thinks is going to bring fruit. Right? And so he's putting his hope in something, and he's doing what he knows to do with that something. I actually watch a YouTube channel that's farmers and they're planting peas right now. And they put these little peas in the ground and then these little sprouts come and their whole livelihood, everything they do, has to do with whether something's fruitful. So, sowing to the Spirit, that's helpful. Because I think what that means is that means putting my hope in the Spirit to do the things that I hope the Spirit will do. So that's one step. So how do I put my hope in? What's the seed the Spirit gives me to put my hope in? It's the Bible, isn't it? It's, it's the Word. And so putting, what, if I'm sowing and putting my hope in this seed to bear fruit, if I'm sowed in the Spirit, I think that means something like putting my hope in what He's given me to bear fruit. And what He's given me is the Word. So how do I put my hope in the Word? I do what? I believe what it says. And so maybe there's some sort of correlation between faith and what the Spirit does. And what I want to show you is that walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, sowing by the Spirit, if you want to know what that feels like on the inside, I'm getting ready to tell you what it feels like on the inside. 
But in my hope that God's word is true and believing it and acting upon it. In other words, faith looks a whole lot like walking by, sowing to, being led by the Spirit. Believing God's word. Now I've got to prove that to you. I can't just say it because it sounds pious. I want you to believe it. So look back, and we'll end with this. And I've, I've shown you this before, but we need to look at it again. Look back at Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. Is there right there, Galatians 5, 5? Now, I gotta, you got to be looking at this, because I'm going to point this out to you. Because God wrote a book using words, and we have to pay attention to words if we're going to understand His meaning, right? So let's look at some words. Here we go. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There's that word hope. That's good. So we're eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. Now here's my question. How are we waiting for the hope of righteousness? The first way is through what? Through the Spirit. So we've got the Spirit there. But there's a second way that we're eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. What is it? By faith. So eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness happens two ways. Through the Spirit, by what? There is a link there between the Spirit and faith. Do you see it? Now, go down one more verse. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through or producing love. So in Galatians 5, 6, what is it that produces love? Faith. But faith working through love. Now look back up here at the screen. What is it up here that produces love? What the Spirit does in one place, faith does in another place. Do you see that? What the Spirit does in one place, faith does in another place. What we do by the Spirit, we do by faith. Let me give you at least one more. Go back to a famous verse, Galatians 2.20. On your way there, stop at Galatians 3.2. Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. Alright, Galatians 3 to you there. Alright, let me only ask you this, Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What's the answer to that question? Hearing with faith. And what did you do when you heard with faith? You received the Spirit when you heard with faith. Again there, we have a link. That what faith does is what the Spirit is doing. You see that? Now let's go to Galatians 2.20. Just above that. Let's deal with this. Famous verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Theological question. How does Christ live in you? By the person of the Holy Spirit. Christ lives in you by the Holy Spirit. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me by the Holy Spirit. Now listen to this. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live how? Are you seeing a pattern here? That what the Spirit does, faith does. They're still separate. The Spirit is a person. Faith is something that we do. But what I want you to see is there's a strong connection between the Spirit 
and faith. And so from there, we can go back to our passage and we can, we can translate these spiritual sounding phrases into experiences that we know. So when someone says walk by the Spirit or live by the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit, here's what I want to propose. That what that is like on the inside is that's you believing God's Word and acting according to it. When you believe God's Word and you act according to it, that is how you receive the Spirit. That is how the Spirit produces His work. That is how the Spirit produces His fruit. And so, what can sound so esoteric and spiritual, and we love to talk in spiritual phrases because we don't know what they mean and nobody else knows what they mean, so we don't really have to change. Right? Here's what I'm telling you. And if you want to be a spirit-led, spirit-walking, spirit-obeying person, that the experience of that is nothing more. That is something more. But it is centrally believing what God said and acting upon it. And when you do that, the Spirit comes in and He empowers and He expands and He gives fruit. And so when the Bible says, do be led by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, what it's saying is, Trust God's word enough to do what it says. And so in community, and I think our church from the top down, there are ways in which we do that really well, there are ways in which we don't do that well at all. And so if we're going to be a spirit-filled, spirit-fruit-bearing community, then what we need to do individually and together is to believe the Bible and to do what it says with each other. And then the Spirit will be at work among us. I could talk for a long time about the particular areas that we struggle with, but I just want to talk about one. And I've seen this in the life of my extended family recently, and it's a sin that I've committed on a number of occasions, and it's one I don't want to commit, and I don't want you to commit. And it's this. We either trust that Jesus has told us the right way to deal with our problems or we don't. And the right way that Jesus has told us to deal with our problems is in 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18. If you know someone who has sinned, go by yourself and speak to that person. If they don't listen, take it to another. If they don't listen, take it to the church. I think our first impulse is to talk to others about it rather than to talk to when that happens, you're not trusting the Spirit to do His work. And fruit will not be born among us. I could extend that list out. But the basic thing that's going on here is if we want to be a Spirit-fruit-producing people, it's going to be that in the hard choices of our lives, we decide to listen to the wisdom of the Scripture and do what it says, rather than to do what seems immediately apparently wise to us. When we do that, we will be a fruit-bearing community together. And Paul says if we don't do that. Look back up at Galatians 5.15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That's where Paul starts with his whole discussion. Right? 
So where are some areas in my life that I'm not listening to the wisdom of the scripture and therefore seeing fruit and spirit? Instead, I'm producing flesh stuff. Where are some areas of your life where instead of walking by the spirit, you're trusting your own wisdom and producing flesh stuff? I know this about this church, that we want to be a fruit-bearing church. I know this about people I've had problems with in the past, but they're Christian people who love Jesus. We just need to live this thing out better. Alright, let's go Lord in prayer. Father, help us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got five minutes to chat, but at uh, 7.31, make sure we go get our kids.